0: Our guest likens bundled pricing to a prenup and RBP to a divorce attorney. What does he mean by that? And why is it important as our industry changes? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes
1: or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to The Shift Shapers Podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and Chief Transformation Strategist,
0: David Saltzman. This episode of The Shift Shapers Podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement that helps small and mid-market companies escape the fully insured marketplace and delivers stability, control, and savings without watering down employees' benefits or increasing their premium share. If you have clients in the educational institution or the engineering vertical, go to our website at CaptivatedHealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're speaking with T.J. Morrison, TJ is president at Benefit Design Specialists, and some interesting perspectives on the markets and where we're going with that. Welcome, TJ. Thanks, David. So you're a second-generation agency owner. What did Gen 1 look like, and how did it get you to where you guys are today?
1: Yeah, so great question, very interesting. Actually, you know, my my father got out of college and worked for a family friend in their junkyard business for about 2 years. And my mother finally begged him one day to go to a life insurance seminar and twisted his arm a little bit to get him there. But got him there, and that was really the start of my father getting into the insurance business and basically, you know, started out like a lot of individuals do or did in the past. It was a lot of the individual life, financial advising, which grew into 401k business. And then obviously took steps over into the group world throughout the 90s and led into a lot of the innovation that we moved forward with in the 2000s and then where we are today. So, very interesting story how it came to be, but, you know, nevertheless, you know, I think everybody has kind of a background as to how they fell into this industry.
0: Well, you know, it, it is an interesting story and it, you know, kind of brought us up to, to, a lot of us are kind of accidental insurance people. And it certainly sounds like had your mom not prevailed on your dad to get out of the junkyard business, you might be doing something else today too. But, <laughs> but that's kind of the interesting way that this, this all happens. Everybody's got a story. And, and what's nice about the perspective of being a second-generation agency is that you've kind of had the ability to look back over what your dad did and where he started, which is similar to the place that I started. And you've seen a huge shift. And especially today, there's a lot of interest in partially self-funded plans. And I, I know that's something that you're keen on, but I, I also know that you believe that they need to be done differently than they have been in the past. How so?
1: Yeah. So, you know, as I kind of mentioned or alluded to in answering the first question there, you know, I've said that we've always favored on the side of innovation here. And a lot of that, you know, was birthed out of kind of my father's mindset in the business that, you know, you're either the first person to do something, the best, or you're different in the industry. And, you know, we've kind of always had our roots in forms of self funding, uh, particularly when we started what we called the MERP concept. Everybody calls it HRA, health reimbursement accounts nowadays. And basically that was self-funding fully insured deductibles. And from 2002 to 2008, that grew our business tremendously. But obviously in 2008, you had the conversations with healthcare reform on the horizon, which, you know, later came to fruition in 2010. And. You know, in those conversations as a business, we said, okay, what are we going to do next to fit that mantra? First, best or different. And that's really where we sat down and said, if we're going to have a path in the future, if we're going to provide value to our customers and, and future customers, we need to be able to do self-funding, but do it way different than everybody else. And, you know, what I mean by that is back, you know, even if you go back to 2008, 2009, the version of self-funding really was go to a Buka carrier, purchase their ASO, purchase their stop loss a lot of times. And that was supposedly a self-funded plan, but nobody was questioning any fiduciary oversight, drug carve out, where's all this money at that, you know, employers are missing out on. So, when we sat down at that time, it was let's rip a health plan apart and put it back together with the best in class vendors. And that took us about three years to do. Shockingly, in the industry, it's it's very difficult to find people that are honest and trustworthy. So, you know, all that work transpired into us eventually launching a product. It was about 2012 going into 2013 that we trademarked as transparent health. And really what that was, David, was it was a it was that whole idea of ripping a health plan apart and putting it back together with the best in class vendors, built on a chassis of independent administrator, greater claims oversight, you know, fiduciary obligation to kind of look over and guard the employer's money on claims expenses, using data analytics to drive real results and actionable steps for plan design change, drug carve out with having a pharmacist actually have oversight to monitor employee compliance of medications, to, to find alternative options for highly utilized high. Cost drugs, and then wrapping it up with tools to help employees engage and actually shop for healthcare, be rewarded, and looking to implement solutions that were true disease and wellness management. That from the time a claim was initiated that had certain codes, that employee was immediately engaged in some way, shape, or form. So, through all that innovation, you know, it kind of led us into. Creating this product, Transparent Health, because I say to a lot of people, you know, most people don't care how a watch works. They just want to look at it and tell time. And what was important in the way that we delivered that to the market was that we had it bundled up, nice, pretty package with a bow on top that we walked out the door and said, here's Transparent Health, and essentially sell it and market it just like another, you know, health insurance plan option that was in the market. So that took us a lot of work. We're very proud of that. I made some tremendous relationships and connections through the industry in building that model. That's also helped us get to where we are today.
0: You know, other brokers might be interested in undertaking this path. I guess the question is, from your experience, what's the size group where it makes sense to kind of go down this road? Because, you know, there's got to be a cost-benefit ratio someplace that fulcrum is set underneath the plank. Where does it tip? What size?
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And, you know, the other thing I like to tell people too is I learned self funding all the wrong way by basically screwing it up and then fixing it all. And in some of that, what happened was so, so, you know, if you remember back, we had that big push for all these groups to renew on a 12 1 basis. And you know all, all these smaller groups. You know you're under hundred class groups, all pushed to twelve one renewals. Well, that, that's just insane because you now stacked a bunch of your groups that have renewals throughout the year on twelve one, and then turn right around into one one. And have, you know, the busiest time of your year. So needless to say, you know, our fall season anymore is absolutely crazy around here. But why I bring all that up is the second year. So the first year they all moved, there was typically a cost benefit for them doing it. But that second year, everybody got hammered by big increases and when i went out with transparent health my focus was the larger market employers and you know mainly 100 plus but mainly that 200 to 1000 life market that's what we were chasing in but here we sit as an agency and this is where i think there's so much value in second generation family you know i knew that this business fed our family put a roof over our head growing up and we have a lot of clients that are 15 20 year customers And when I was looking at these small groups getting hammered with these huge increases, there was nothing I I had to help them. So what we did is we took Transparent Health and pulled it downstream. I think the smallest group we had in was about 20 lives. And we had a varied array of 20 life groups, 30, 35, 40. You know, we had about 10 groups that fell in that 20 to 70 life pool that I rolled right into this the first year. A lot of them are actually still in it today, David. But the the one thing I learned in that, though, is we did put in a heck of a lot of work to pull all these pieces together and make it work so that basically they didn't, you know, they didn't have to try to do it on their own. They didn't have to try to question what we were doing. But what we realized with it was... They didn't really understand why we did it. And that didn't come to fruition until the second year renewal. And a couple of them, when we went in and met with them, they were like, well, did you quote everybody else again? You know, they they were just used to the way the renewal game worked. And I said, you guys aren't understanding why we did this. We did this as a long-term solution. So... While you can do it in the small group segment, we've really, st- I've stayed away from that. All of my focus right now is really 100 plus life groups. If I have an opportunity on a 50, 60, 70 life group that's currently in some form of self funding and gets it, I'll certainly help them. But to your point and kind of where we're going, and I, I took a long time to answer that, is it is extremely labor intensive to do this. And obviously, when you're working with smaller groups, you're only getting paid at a smaller group level. So it's, it's a catch-22.
0: And now, a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single-source solution for your clients and prospects in the education and engineering verticals. The founders of Captivated Health have 35 years' experience working with healthcare and benefit clients. And over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems mid-market clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing health care costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace. Until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems and does so with virtually no disruption to employees while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to your education and engineering clients that you advise. To learn more about Captivated Health solution, go to our website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on our logo on the Shift Shapers website. So I know one of the components that you've studied and that you talk about a lot is reference-based pricing, and we've talked about it a bunch on the podcast, but I, it's hard to get a handle on whether it's actually really happening outside of a handful of practitioners? Are are you seeing any kind of broad nationwide adoption or is it just going to be a slow trickle? You know, it's,
1: it's a very interesting question. So reference-based pricing has been growing in leaps and bounds, but it's been growing mainly in certain pockets of the country. You know, you look at, places like Texas, very big there, Florida, Southern California. And, and in any given state, there's certain cities and different areas in which it's just popping up and starting to ramp up. I think the interesting part about reference-based pricing, and this is 100% my opinion, is the market's been broken for so long. Employers year over year, and and I'm talking, you know, getting away maybe from a larger self-funded employer that has more of an ability to control cost and, you know, not feel the increases. But when you look at groups continuously getting 30, 40, 50% increases year over year, they've had enough. And reference-based pricing has been kind of one of those things that the Bucas have seen it. And I think they look at it and say, you know, that's cute. Go sit in the corner. You're not making enough of a dent in our business. But if my book of business is a lot like other brokers out there in the country, I've been prepping. My groups are prime. They're ready to go. Over the next renewal season, I'm going to have probably easily 10 to 15 groups that move into reference-based pricing. So I think it, the challenge with it is that you know every market's different. You have markets that are dominated by maybe one large hospital or two large hospital settings. And it's important that when you take a reference-based pricing approach, you don't do it in an aggressive way to hurt the provider. Because the provider traditionally hasn't been the one that just single-handedly has been the problem in the system. So if you can introduce reference-based pricing, do it in a mutually agreeable way that makes the provider happy, you'll not only have success, but you'll have traction. And the more traction you get, because frankly, I I have a lot of the big employers right now that are sitting back and just kind of waiting. They want to see how this is going to play out. But it's, you know, the next five years, I believe that a large majority of employers are going to be in some form of a reference-based pricing solution.
0: Another area that you and I are both interested in is the free market medicine movement. You know, we interviewed Keith Smith some time ago, and we'll link back to Keith's interview, but more generically maybe called bundled pricing. Where do you see that in the marketplace? Is that similarly situated right now to reference-based pricing in terms of being certain areas and certain parts of the country in certain size plans, or is that having a broader appeal? The beauty with a free market medicine approach
1: and these bundled cash arrangements is they sit beautifully right next to a reference-based pricing solution. They sit nicely, obviously, next to a Buca plan. But when you talk reference-based pricing, the biggest place for noise is when an employee goes in for an elective procedure and the provider gets that card and says, wait, there's no Buca logo on this. We don't take this. So now the employee, you know, they're put in an awkward situation. There's fear of balance, Bill, where, you know, the best analogy I've found for it is reference-based pricing, a lot of ways is like the divorce attorney and bundled cash arrangements are a lot like the prenuptial arrangement. Uh, agreement. So, you know, we're agreeing upon a bundle price before the employee ever goes in. There's no chance of balance bill. Pricing is on these bundled procedures is in the, you know, 100 to 120% of Medicare. So huge savings versus a buca 200 to 600 times Medicare. It's what I like about it, David, to be honest with you is we've preached consumerism in healthcare and I, I laughed because I, I was part of this problem when HSAs came out is everybody said, oh, put an HSA in and that'll teach consumerism. Well, all you did was give somebody a very high deductible, but you gave them no tools to really price shop. And moreover, if that employee was getting a $50,000 procedure, let's say, what do they care where they go? They're blowing through the deductible anyway, and there's no reward. There's no benefit for them. So what I like about the environment that we've... You know, all been working to create in that bundled arena is we've created a way that there's 100% transparency in pricing and an avenue to basically say, look, Mr. and Mrs. Employee, if you just engage and you end up having a procedure done through a provider that participates, you get your deductible waived and you stand the chance of a financial bonus, taxable cash bonus. So, I I really see, you know, both things are going to take off tremendously into the future. The bundle cash arrangements and the free market medicine approach is a very easy, non-invasive approach that I think people will adopt quicker than RBP, just because it's, it's a simple voluntary program. Look, we're here. If you call us, you get the reward. If you don't call us, you don't get anything, but your health plan didn't change and you still have the network and everything you're comfortable with.
0: Do you drive that by changing SPDs so that employees have a clinician they have to go to for a kind of second opinion that helps remind them that they've got this benefit available to them? when they're looking for a non-emergent procedure or do you, is education enough?
1: Yeah. So it, it's a combination of a few things. So from a legal aspect, you, these are ERISA benefits. So you have to have them labeled in some form of a plan document. So the easiest way to do that is to create a simple amendment to the SPD that outlines this, you know, whatever program it may be that's providing the bundle cash arrangement and you classify it as an out-of-network benefit with no cost. So from a legal standpoint, that's how you kind of cover those grounds. But from an engagement standpoint, it's amazing. People are numb to a lot of things nowadays. You know, we obviously live in a fast society. Everything's on our phone, instantaneous. But when something's new or a process is new, especially in healthcare, because a lot of people have put their head in the sand and said, you know, I don't know it. I don't understand it. You know, the latest statistics been 14% literacy rate. In healthcare across our entire country. So while we're excited, we know the value of these programs, the employers are excited. It's important to keep that employee engagement. And, you know, I can tell you just from our personal experience here, in a lot of ways, we've become a marketing firm that we didn't intend to be because we're constantly trying to market and educate the employees. And what we do see, and and I think everybody out there that's doing this sees that is, after about a year of hard marketing and hard push, getting the message out, call XYZ service if you need anything elective, that becomes second nature to the employee
0: by year two and three. Do you find that after that first year, you you accumulate success stories? Do those help if they're disseminated? Do those help motivate employees that are maybe newer that haven't had the uh, the opportunity to have a non-emergent surgery?
1: Yeah, they do and and you know it really helps. We have a couple clients they do, you know, their monthly newsletter, monthly emails out to employees and and everybody's very open to sharing stories and they'll put that information out to their population and then help feed the water cooler effect throughout the organization. Look, Mary Smith just had this procedure, you know, she saved the company XYZ and she got a $2000 reward. It was great. Here was her experience. The provider was wonderful. That we stress so much and I think a lot of people do on having a positive experience and making sure the member has a positive experience because if if that type of communication gets back to the rest of the employee population, you know, that will just elevate the usage of the program. And ultimately the goal at the end of the day is employer saves a lot of money, employees are happy, and you know, we've now started to chip away at changing healthcare
0: and the way it's delivered. So we've got about a minute left. Where do you see the future of this going? What are kind of next steps? What do you see on the horizon? Yeah. So, you know, in in my opinion, David,
1: across the board, I I say to people all the time, you know, because they roll their eyes sometimes when you're in healthcare, but I say to people all the time, the next five, 10, 15 years of healthcare are going to be absolutely the most exciting because, you know, what healthcare reform did is I think we can all agree on some levels that it didn't really control costs very well, But what it did is it sparked innovation in the industry. It sparked people to say, you know, hey, government's not going to fix healthcare for us. Private sector employers one at a time are going to have to fix it. So I see a lot of innovation. I see reference-based pricing being a very forward solution, maybe if not the solution. But look, carriers, you know, insurance carriers aren't multi-billion dollar entities to just go out of business overnight. So what I'm interested to see in the future is how they react to how the industry changes. And is it too late for them to react?
0: Oh, so I'll I'll go another minute here. Is it too late for them to react?
1: My thing, reference-based pricing is a sleeping monster. My problem is this, is I think insurance carriers, they're built, everything in this country, I think, was built for the right reasons, but you know, I think insurance carriers, they're built in such a way that they have their set profit centers. And everything that's being proposed, you talk about drug carve-out programs, no spread pricing, rebate return to the customer, all these areas of transparency that are being pushed. If you were to take all those pieces and put it in an insurance carrier, frankly, they would probably have to fire three quarters to half of their staff because they're losing all the financial benefits of those avenues. So, it's hard to believe. The only thing that I think an insurance carrier could do to provide value is, is is if somehow they make a huge tech play in the market. And I also don't see that because they're typically old school style thinking, mentality, status quo, keep chugging along. So, you know, in my opinion, David, I do believe it's too late to react for
0: the majority of insurance carriers out there. Well, TJ, I hope you come back and we can, we can discuss that as time goes on. TJ Morrison, president at Benefit Design Specialists. Thanks so much for sharing your expertise with our audience, TJ.
1: Absolutely, David. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I really thank you for this experience. It was a great time today, and uh, hopefully you get to do it again.
0: The Shift Shaper Podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved.